You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends, and welcome. I'm glad you could join me today. I have a special guest. Her name is Kisha Kloster. She is from Houston, Texas, where she has worked as a marriage and family therapist since 2012. She's particularly interested in working with couples and those who are having trouble with anger and intimacy. She says her goal is to be as real and authentic as possible. Now you know why I wanted to have her on, while also giving her clients the space to feel comfortable telling their stories. That way they can explore the endless possibilities that healthy relationships and self-discovery can provide. The importance of self-discovery is something we discuss at length in this episode. She gives specific advice for how you can do this too, if you're not already far along the the journey of self-discovery, which I think is much needed. Imagine if we as as a society shifted our focus from external cues of identity like skin color, which shouldn't mean much, to a more internal focus, which should mean just about everything. We spend so little time in solitude and so much time with machines and screens that machines probably know us better than we know ourselves. We're about 50 days from an election, and we're still polling people the way we did 20, 30, 40 years ago, when in reality, they could probably just go to Facebook and say, hey, which which way is this person probably going to vote? I don't know if that's legal, but <laughs> it just seems like you'd probably get more accuracy. They tend to know our preferences better than we do. Google, Netflix, Amazon, they all know us better than we know ourselves, more than likely. Speaking of, on my 40th birthday, I got effusive praise from my virtual assistant. It was the nicest birthday wish and said something like, you deserve all great things to happen to you. It was just really nice. And I was thinking, is that a cultural thing? Is it a language barrier? Am I her boss? Why is she being so nice? Well, a few weeks ago, I was looking at my Google AdSense account. Google AdSense advertises on the blog. And I noticed that my search history was in there. And my virtual assistant has access to this Google AdSense account and could see my search history. And so I got that little nervous feeling like, oh, shit, what? <laughs> I better check and see what I've been Googling for the last two years since she's been part of my team. And would you believe that there was nothing bad? I must I must use another browser for all of my good stuff, all my good searches, but I I was relieved, like I can't believe it. And I thought about my 40th birthday when she wished me a happy birthday. And I thought she must think that, you know, I'm a saint. But uh, yeah, she must not have had the right browser or something. I don't know. But all that stuff is tracked and it's crazy. I didn't even know it it had been tracked. I mean, I thought when I erased my browser history, all that stuff would be gone. But nope, it's right there in my Google AdSense, all of my Google searches. Something else interesting that happened a week ago, we were at the doctor's office checking in on baby O, and the doctor asked if we wanted to do a screening for Down syndrome, and it kind of 
caught us off guard. We, we didn't know anything about it. So as someone who thinks in probabilities and cost benefit, like I do, I wanted to know some things like what are the odds of our baby having Down syndrome? What do statistics show for a woman my wife's age? Do most people get this test done at a cost of $540? Because I'd want to call the insurance company and find out if, if it's covered. Well, the answers to those questions are, overall, the odds of having a baby with Down syndrome are something like 1 in 600. But that number is skewed downward because a woman my age, which is 40, has about a 1 in 100 chance, a 1% chance. For someone closer to my wife's age, mid-20s, the odds are about 1 in 1,200. And then lastly, since I wanted to know whether or not others got the test done, I started texting my buddies sitting there in the doctor's office. And none of them had the test done for their kids. So I was 0 for 7 there. So once I considered all this data and one of my buddies suggested that I consider whether or not I would change anything if we, in fact, found out our baby had Down syndrome, and it wouldn't. So although I might tweak some things from a personal finance perspective, because I know there are higher costs associated when you have a baby with Downs, but we ultimately decided not to get the test done. So where am I going with this? Well, the doctor told me that the test is done by Quest Diagnostics. Do you know that within minutes, I got an email from Quest Diagnostics for the first time? That is nuts, but I'm sure that happens to many of you. I was just really taken aback. Our phones are definitely listening. My wife and I had the most ex amazing experience of our lives when we worked with kids with Down syndrome in Indonesia. They are perhaps the brightest light of humanity. You know, our National Institution of Health has done self-perception studies on those with Down syndrome, age 12 and up, because they want to share their findings with new and expectant parents of kids with Down syndrome. And the results are incredible. So among those surveyed, 99%, almost 99% of people with Down syndrome indicated that they were happy with their lives. 97% liked who they are, 96% liked how they look, almost 99% expressed love for their families, and 97% liked their brothers and sisters. My own anecdotal evidence reflects the same. Kids with Down syndrome are so freaking happy. So more on my guest today. Kisha and I are friends from high school. And I think our common history and the fact that we've maintained our friendship makes for a natural rapport in this episode. I think it helps to foster a deeper, more candid conversation. So, for example, we talk openly about our own marriages, how things have changed in the dating world since she and I were single. At times, like when she's answering listener questions, I felt like... Adam Carolla to her Dr. Drew. Remember Love Line on MTV when Carolla would give his two cents? At times, I, I felt like Carolla. <laughs> it was kind of like that. Also, no surprise here, I talk about women and how they've changed through the years. If you're a regular listener, you know I don't buy into this idea that there are topics that are off limits like women or like the idea that I'm white and can't talk about race. 
or I'm straight, so I can't talk about anything concerning gays and lesbians. All that's bullshit to me. Free speech is free thought. And as long as we still have that here in America, I'm going to keep speaking my mind and calling out dishonesty and BS when I encounter it. I believe when you have a microphone, it's incumbent on you to speak for those who not only don't have a platform, but those who feel as though they can't speak or think freely because their job or their livelihood is at stake. But I'm afraid that's where we are today, folks. Sorry to say. Kisha and I believe people our age may be that. I believe when you have a microphone, it's incumbent on you to speak for those who not only don't have a platform, but those who feel as though they can't speak or think freely because their job or their livelihood is at stake. But I'm afraid that's where we are today, folks. Sorry to say. Kisha and I believe people our age may be the last generation to experience old school courting, where you meet someone, you go on a real date, you have long talks on the phone because you're excited, uh, rather than people probably text novels back and forth rather than press talk. But it's all in anticipation of physical intimacy. We spend quite a lot of time talking about the waning of physical intimacy in the honeymoon phase, you know, once that's over. Why is it that we spend the first year or two wanting to madly make love to our significant other, and then over time, as the honeymoon phase ends, you start to long for the feelings that you once had for them? Well, what Kisha and I talk about is, can you maintain those feelings, or can you get yourself back to a place where you do desire your partner the same way you did in the beginning. So Kisha shares her ideas for how we can maintain polarity, that sizzle that makes us feel alive. She's got some great thoughts on, on that stuff. She and I have read some of the same books like Mating in Captivity, which we share. I should also preface our discussion with the fact that we generalize a lot. But if you can't generalize, you can't see patterns. If you can't see patterns, I would argue you're not a serious thinker. Of course, there are going to be exceptions. For my part, I'm only familiar with heterosexual couples. You should know before we start that that's where I'm coming from. But I understand some people need this explained, and I'm happy to do it. It's a higher intellect that can hear something that maybe disagrees with your sensibilities, yet upon hearing something disagreeable, can still consider whether what you're hearing is something that applies to men and women more generally versus applies to you specifically, and then decide whether or not you disagree or agree from there. This ability is also indicative of someone who tends to have a lower ego rather than sees everything through the single-player perspective. You can be an observer of yourself. You can witness your walk through the world. If you don't do this naturally, and I think some of us tend to have this trait, while others, it needs more cultivation. But you can monitor and observe your behavior. You can learn this ability. You don't have to see things through your own point of view at all times. You can kind of look down on yourself and see yourself as someone in the world. The TLDR of this intro is get over yourself. <laughs> we discussed depression, suicide, infidelity, emotional intelligence, 
creating a happy marriage by not missing bids for affection, tips for better communication, love languages, and a lot more. As you know, I don't say without further ado, I just bring on the guests. So please enjoy this very candid convo with Kisha Kloster. Kisha, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I know you're in the process of moving. Where are you headed? We are moving to a small town about 45 minutes away from where I live now, um, out in near, like in Austin County, Belleville, Texas. So 45 minutes from Houston. 45 minutes from Cyprus, which is the suburbs of Houston. And so you're selling your house in Houston or are you renting it out? Selling. Did you make a lot of money on your house? Uh, quite a bit. Really? Yeah, I like guess. Like 100000 Uh Close to. Wow. That's awesome. And are you going to put that equity down on the next house? Well, honestly, we are going to pay off some debts. Um, and we're going to put some money away for our kids, for their college, whatever they need later in life. And then... I'm not sure what we're going to do with the rest. Astros season tickets, maybe. <laughs> if they ever fan. come back in person, right? <laughs> right. So you have known since you were 17 years old that you were going to be a therapist. Right. Why is that? When I was 17, I went to a therapist myself. During that time, I don't know, call it teenage angst. Maybe it was more, I was severely depressed. I had thoughts of suicide, things like that. So... One night, I told my mom that I was having these thoughts. They got me a therapist. I went and saw her. When I went and saw her, I was like, this is what I want to do for other people. This is what I want to help other people with their lives. Because it was so helpful to you? Because it was so helpful to me. That was definitely a turning point in my life. I'm 40 now. I was 17 then. So what? do the math. 23 years later, I still think about some of the things that she taught me as far as the way that I think in psychology they have they call it cognitive distortions different ways that you think about things uh, black and white thinking is one of one of a, a cognitive distortion um, it's maladaptive ways of thinking um, she went a lot into those kinds of things I would you know when you're a teenager you're very concerned about what other people think about you, what other people, how they treat you. you. Everything's about social status. And she kind of helped me get out of my head about that and kind of put people, like, who cares what people think about you, right? You can't control that. You have to, and you might not even, you might be wrong about what you think people think about you. You can't be in their, their heads. So she gave me confidence to just be who I wanted to be. So. Well, I knew you at that age. Yes. You were popular. You had many friends, mm -hmm. great friends. Yes. The, who I'm still friends with. I mean, yes. I see that included. on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> so it surprises me to hear this. Did everyone know about the problems you were having personally? Some of my girlfriends knew. Um, but I mean, they're 17 too. Their thoughts are, well, everyone gets sad. Everyone gets depressed. Everyone gets, feels bad about themselves sometimes, especially at that age. It was never a thought of, I never had a plan to kill myself. I never had a plan to do that. But it was more of a feeling of, I just don't want to be here. I just don't want to be here anymore. I wanted to just kind of float above 
wait, wait it out for a while. When I felt better, I'd come back kind of thing. I didn't want to be permanently gone. I just wanted to feel better. And I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. So we have a mutual friend who committed suicide when right. we were about 27 years old. Right. Also a pivotal moment in my life. Why? After he committed suicide, I twofold. One, because of my my history with, with depression and everything. Um, but two, because what am I that's when I decided to go back to grad school and get my master's in therapy. One, to help try to help people possibly like him, um, that were depressed, but also because life is short. And I wanted to feel better about myself and be doing what I wanted to be doing instead of what I was doing at that time. Did you recognize anything in him, like a reflection of yourself? No. No? No. So your first job after your graduate school was working at a psychiatric hospital. Correct. And what was your biggest takeaway from that experience? One, oh, there's so many things. I had a supervisor there who was my supervisor when I was an intern. When I first started interning there, I had never witnessed the level of psych mental health issues that were there. As far as schizophrenia, I had never firsthand experienced that. So I was, I was shocked. Um, I wish everyone could kind of experience that. So people understand how horrible mental illness is and can be. Regardless, there was a client or a patient there that just got to me. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but he was a homeless man. We had no idea who his family was. We had no one to call. It was, he was old, probably seventies, just heartbreaking. And my supervisor, when I had a meeting with him there said, you know, what's, how's everything going? And I told him about this man. And I was like, you know, I just, I went home and I cried. It was just sad. And he's like, oh, you need tougher skin. You need to get, you need thicker skin. And, <laughs> and at the time I was like, uh, I'm sorry, but I just have empathy for somebody. You're going to tell me that I'm not supposed to as a therapist or as some, a mental health clinician who's trying to help this person. Fast forward to after I graduated, when I was working at the same hospital that supervisor had left and gone to a different hospital. He called me and asked me to come interview for him at this new hospital. And I did because I was getting kind of burned out where I was and I thought, well, maybe a change of scenery, you know, working under somebody that I know better, blah, blah, blah. I went there and it just didn't, I just didn't feel right about it. And it was further from my house. It was, it was the same problems, just a different place. So I turned it down and he was so rude to me and mad at me for it. Why did you even bother coming to interview here? Same guy that told me I need thicker skin. And my thought was, 
I need thicker skin against people like you, <laughs> not patients that I'm supposed to be caring for. Um, now, there is some truth to, you know, you can't let those things affect your own life and your own mental health. But crying for another human being because they're suffering is not a bad thing. So I learned like, you know, yeah, you're right. I do need thicker skin. But from that moment on, I was like, I'm going to set my boundaries at this job because that job can burn you out quick. It sounds to me like he needs to take rejection better <laughs> and he could use a thicker Maybe. skin. Maybe. I, I mean, he, it was like he thought I wasted his time, you know. Mm. Why did you even bother coming to interview? Well, because... I wanted to see what, you know, if there was a better opportunity and it wasn't. He felt like he was doing you a favor and didn't realize that you were in a position of strength, not him. Exactly. People often make that mistake when they're interviewing to think that they're either in a position of strength or not in a position of strength, not understanding which side has leverage and make a lot of mistakes as a result. With your work as a marriage and family therapist. Is there any truth to the adage, once you're in couples therapy, your marriage is basically over? No. I will say that most of the couples that come to see me are on their last ditch effort to make it work. So yes and no. I don't think it's impossible to come back from that through counseling and through hard work. But a lot of times, it's I tell them all the time, if you would have come here a year ago when things started getting worse, you would have had a much better you would have a much better chance of making it work. But it's got it's gotten so bad that you have a long a long way to go, a lot further. So, are there any people who come to see you for the first time who are doing well and maybe just trying to preempt any potential problems they might have? No. That never happens? Not, no, not in my experience. I used to do a lot of premarital therapy, people that were about to get married. And in that sense, yes. Um, I do, I do have on my um, psychology today um, advertisement that I do premarital therapy. I don't have a whole lot of people that call me for that. You wrote an excellent article for manoverseas.com. It was called The Struggle of Infidelity. Right. And in it, you said that by far the most common reason that couples walk through your door is cheating. Right. And I remember you saying that the reason people cheat is because they're either unfulfilled emotionally or the person cheats because they're unfulfilled sexually within their relationship. I want to run something by you because I know you also minored in philosophy in college. Right. And I realize stoicism isn't a philosophy that's widely discussed in school. Is that fair to say? Yes. But one of its tenets is to prepare for a crisis before it comes. And I'm a big proponent of this. I wrote recently in my 40 pieces of life advice that we should get to acceptance as fast as possible. And by acceptance, I mean welcome everything that happens in your life. 
that an overreaction is an indication that you didn't prepare or you lack imagination to think that this couldn't happen to you. Since human nature is unchanged for thousands of years, infidelity isn't going away. It's something that will always be with us. And so my question to you is, would it be wise then to accept infidelity as an inevitability and then work backwards from there? And the reason I, I say that is because after reading Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, more than any book that I've ever read, it helps one to deal with the inevitability of death. Tragedy is built into the human experience. Everyone we know is going to die. Almost in the same way, we understand that our loved ones are going to die before old age. Some of people are going to cheat before they reach old age. Two of the happiest people I know or have known, both of them had or have the attitude that men are going to cheat. Just don't rub it in my face. In other words, don't bring it up. I don't want to know or hear about it. Both of them have been blissfully married or were blissfully married for 40 to 50 years. Happy as can be. I want to get your thoughts on what I said in terms of what if we accepted death? or accepted that infidelity happens. It's almost like if you watch war movies, I, I remember in Band of Brothers, one of the guys says to the other, you know what your problem is? You think you have a chance at living. If, if you accept the fact that you're already dead, then, then you, can, you can win this fight. Then you can battle. And so, since it's part of human nature and will always be with us, I'm not condoning it. But what do you think about what I'm saying? Fidelity, infidelity is one of those things. And you said, you know, it's inevitable, like, like death. I don't disagree with that. I think there will, it will always be around and to some extent. Is it going to be more prevalent later on? Is it going to, you know, have a decline? Who knows? The difference is death is inevitable for all of us. Infidelity, we might say, I can sit here and say it's probably, it's inevitable to some relationships or to 25% of relationships or 50%, whatever the number is. But I'm still going to tell you, oh, that's not going to happen to me. But death, I know will happen to me. I know it will happen to you. So there's always that hope that you're going to be different. And so when couples come into to my office and they're one of them's cheated they didn't go into that relationship they might have gone into the relationship thinking you know we could have infidelity at some point but or other people will but i won't you know we won't we'll we'll beat it we'll you know kind of like like in the war you were talking about the the uh, band of brothers i don't know if you go in thinking like one of us might cheat one day does that manifest it to happen? Well, I guess what I'm saying is if you've resigned to the fact that part of human nature is people are going to cheat, that it's 
we accept that it's happened for thousands of years right. and will continue to happen because of human nature that if can you prepare for that crisis before it comes yes maybe maybe comparing it to death isn't a, a good comparison maybe it would be better compared to divorce Sure, it's something that help, happens to everyone else. But shouldn't but everyone grapple with the thought that that possibility? Absolutely. And like you said, prepare for it. I think that's why premarital therapy is a good thing. Um, it's also, you know, if you have an open enough relationship with your partner, which you should, or you, the goal is to... What are we going to do if we get to a point where like these are these are the factors that come into play during infidelity or the reasons why people are unfaithful? What are we going to do if we get to that point where either one of us feels like unfulfilled sexually or unfulfilled emotionally by the other person? Are we just going to let it brush it under the rug until it gets to a point where we have to go to a therapist and we're on our last leg of our relationship or the you know one of us cheats? Are we going to be proactive about it? We're both big fans of Esther Perel. Yes. The author. Her first book was called Mating in Captivity, which right. I know we've both read. In the book, she talks about the survival of a family is now dependent on the happiness of the couple, which is sort of a new thing. One of the reasons I'm asking these questions is because when I was a kid, my family was destroyed by infidelity. My mom was wrecked, but I remember... She told me that her mother-in-law said to my mom in the midst of the carnage, that's what happened, that that's what this is all about? Come on, all men do that. Do you believe that all men do that? No. But the breakup of my family took an emotional toll on me for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. It changed the course of my life and other people's lives. And I just felt like it could have been handled so much better. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. I have a good friend who had, let's call it an emotional fling at work with a okay. coworker, And it was really bothering him. Now, he didn't feel like he was cheating despite this emotional because there hadn't been anything physical. Now, I'm sure his wife would disagree with that. Yes. But he felt like as long as he could restrain himself from anything physical, that he was okay. But it was keeping him up at night. It was affecting his work performance. And I told him that you need to fuck her or you need to get over this and move on. If you have to take a job somewhere else... You do that. You are not emotionally equipped to handle this intense attraction that you have to, you, to your coworker and you being flirtatious and working in the same space and spending more time with her during the day than you're spending with your wife. You can't handle this. You need to walk away or have sex with her and get it over with. But don't you dare wreck your family over your inability to control yourself. I know that men, men 
are inherently variety seeking creatures and it's it's our job to fight this inherent nature. I also believe many of our vices were once virtues and I can give you some examples. Gambling risk or, or risk taking promiscuity or the need to spread our seed even the capacity for violence all once virtues that had they not been part of human nature, we wouldn't be here. That aided the survival of the species. I actually think it's worse when a woman cheats. Why? Because when a man cheats, he's basically saying, my penis isn't satisfied. I don't think that's true. When a woman cheats, she's basically saying, I found someone better than you. There's not that variety seeking in her nature. She is more hypergamous in seeking the highest value male that she can, she can find. But why do you believe that men don't cheat because they're not satisfied sexually? Why do you think it's more I than that? I definitely think that's part of it. Um, like you said, I think part of it is the variety and, and wanting something different. Um, because men cheat that have great sex lives with their wives that have sex often that, you know, by society standards have, but it's the same person, let's say for 10 years. So I think that does happen. But I also think, and what I've seen in my office often is that men don't feel, and it's not, it's not a matter of their, their, it's more of a matter of feeling desired. You know, oh, oh, yeah, me and my wife have sex two, three times a week. It's great, but I think she just does it because that's what you're supposed to do. They don't feel like their wives think that they're, you know, when you first start dating someone, everything about them is exciting and new and you want to know everything about them. You've been with someone for 10, 15 years you think you know everything. You're just not, you're not like, when they walk in the door, you're, you're not. Desirous of yeah. them. Yeah. And it's not that you don't desire them. It's that it's not as animalistic, I guess. Sure. The passion isn't there. Yeah. Like it the was in the beginning. Yeah. On average. And I think men like to feel like somebody desires them. On average, how long does the passion last, do you think? That animalistic get after it? I think it just depends on the person, honestly. I was thinking about this the other day. When we were teenagers and would date someone, you know, I don't know about your relationships, but they seemed just very dramatic. They were never healthy, really, at least mine. And But I stayed and I, and I kept dating these same type of people because it was exciting. As I've gotten older, I'm like, that's bullshit. I don't want, I don't need the drama. I don't want the drama. Um, so part of me feels like as you get older, that desire for that animalistic passion should kind of plateau down off with maturity because it's, but that's my own personal things, maybe. Because I think passion is important, absolutely. She talks, Esther Perel talks about this in her book, too, is that, or I don't remember, know if you remember a part, she was talking to a client who would get into a relationship 
and just go balls to the wall. I'm so in love with this person, passion, blah, blah, blah. And then six months later, the passion would kind of fade and he'd be like, I'm out. I don't love you anymore. This must not be real. I'm done. And her response to him was, she told him, you need to inhale. She told him to hold her in his inhale as long as possible. And then finally she told him, you can exhale. That's how what passion and security are. You know, you inhale, you have, they work together. They're not, they're not totally too, they're not necessarily opposing you can't inhale without exhaling. You can't exhale with like, you have to have both like a balance of those things. If you're way over onto the passion side and that's all you care about, it's inevitably going to fade and you are going to go in and out of relationships. But if you go all the way to security and that's the most important thing to you, well, then you lack passion in your life. And you were saying, you know, I don't remember exactly how you said it, but we as humans seek passion and seek variety. You said men seek variety. I would agree that men are more variety seeking than women. Women tend to, if you took a hundred people, 50 men and 50 women and did a, you know, a continuum of security, passion, men would be on the passion, more on the passion side and women would be more leaning towards security side and what they look for or what's important to them in a relationship. What Peril says in her book is that you meet someone through a potent alchemy of attraction. It's a sweet reaction, and it's always a surprise. You're filled with a sense of possibility, of hope, of being lifted out of the mundane and into the world of emotion and enthrallment. Love grabs you, and you feel powerful. You cherish the rush, and you want to hold on to that feeling. You're also scared. The more you become attached, the more you have to lose. So then you seek security. So you set out to make love more secure you seek to fix it to make it dependable you make your first commitments and happily give up a little bit of freedom in exchange for a little bit of stability right so i do think that and she talks about this too is that as humans we seek both we want excitement but we also want stability and we look for that now in one person when before you know, and I don't know, back in a hundred years ago, say it was, you looked for security in your partner, but you looked for, you got, you got security from your community and we don't, we don't put as much emphasis on that anymore. It's like, you're my husband or wife or spouse or partner. You need to be exciting for me, but you also need to be stable for me. It's a lot of pressure for for a marriage. We expect too much from our partner. And in a lot of ways, it's replaced family, community, the church, all of that. We expect everything from our partner. We want our best friend. We want a passionate lover. We want safety, spontaneity, security. And I'm going to say this with women... And, and this coming from a woman and coming from, you know, just my experience with, with therapy too, or doing therapy is women are more social typically. So we can get secure, I, you know, get security from our spouse or husband. And then we can go out with our girlfriends and we get fun and excitement that way. We don't, and then we come home. 
men are pretty, and you can disagree with me if you want. I'm sure some people will, but men typically, they, if they're married, like that's their, so that's their person. They might have a few friends. You know, I know that you're married and I know that you have guy friends, um, but they're just not as social. So when any part of that relationship is with the passion, let's say is going down, well, I can go get, you know, get that somewhere else, but I'm still going to come back to you because I still want that security. Women don't necessarily need to go have sex with someone to get that. They want to, they have their bonds with their female friends and their, you know, that's being said, that's very, um, there are women that cheat too. I think more so than people think. You make a great point. I'm deliberate about maintaining strong bonds with my bros because I'm also deliberate about maintaining polarity in my relationship. And there's a lot to be said for allowing your spouse the freedom to go and be girly with her girls and you go do manly things with your boys and be able to speak freely without your words having to be interpreted through an emotional lens. It's, it's like breathing out <laughs> like you just yeah. talked about exhaling it's it's yeah. like a breath of fresh air when you can just be a dude and talk about mm-hmm. stuff that you can't talk about around your wife or you, yeah because you you've been shouldn't. inhaling the whole time around your wife and you go out and you're like okay. precisely and then you come <laughs> back to each other camille paglia talks about this we used to have our own hierarchies where we would come back to each other at the end of the day and make love be excited be feminine and masculine it would come together that sizzle that electricity that we need to work so hard to maintain now because we do expect so much from our partners safety stability security and it's hard to maintain that sizzle when you're smiling taking pictures with your best friend so i i like what you're saying i think it's important that we maintain those friendships and allow ourselves to go be a dude and, and be a chick one of but the things also i think and this kind of piggybacks on that there we get so enmeshed or people in general get so enmeshed with each other that you almost lose the, the part about you that is exciting, you know, for the person to be attracted to you because you're so into them that they can't even see you outside of themselves. It's like, we're, we're a unit, you know, you get married and they say, you know, two become one, but I don't know if that's really, ideal i agree and she talks about this in mating in in captivity about seeing them as the other seeing them across the room and and trying to engender the feelings that you had for them initially where you see them as desirable Mm -hmm. if you just can have that flash of an instance like oh that's what i used to see before we became one and i started asking well what'd you eat for lunch Who'd you talk to this afternoon? Oh, you talked to your mom on the phone? What'd she have to say? And then you end up knowing everything about your partner and there's no mystery. And when there's nothing left to hide, there's nothing left to seek. And so you've been in constant discovery mode since you met and, like you said, become enmeshed with your partner and that ruins the polarity, Mm -hmm. the sizzle. Yeah. There's a powerful tendency in long-term relationships to favor the predictable over the unpredictable. But eroticism thrives in the unpredictable. Right. 
And so when you get into habits and repetition with your partner, desire is going to butt heads with those habits and repetition because desire thrives on the unfamiliar, which is why you should take a girl's trip. The, the most excited my wife and I have ever been to see each other was after I came back from a trip that she was not on with me. That night was amazing. Yeah. You have to create this, this anxiousness, this tension sometimes, because the default state is always being with each other, always talking to each other. I've, I've recorded a podcast with somebody who called his wife before the podcast, after the podcast was over. Uh, while we were at lunch, not texting, calling her. And I know that you need to be more in contact with your spouse when you have kids. But they are never separated, not for an hour. They don't let an hour go by without communicating with their spouse. And I know they're best friends, but I think that you should have a best friend outside of your spouse for the reasons that we're talking about. Because because sex is so important, because desire is so important. Mm-hmm. We also, with the advent of women not depending on their spouse for economic, for economic reasons anymore, there are growing expectations for emotional connection with their spouse. Okay. And since we live in a selfie culture, we've elevated the self to this place on top of the mountain. We've placed a premium on our own happiness. Right. The growing economic independence of women not relying on a man's income, for example, they expect more and demand more. They expect a satisfying emotional connection. Is it true that women will cheat just because they're not happy enough? They want to be happier because we place a lot of emphasis on happiness these days. If I thinking back on clients that I've had that where the the wife has cheated, a lot of times, yes, and a lot of times it's they don't feel appreciated. They don't feel like honestly, like the their husband sees them in a non wife role or a non mother role. They feel like that's all they are as a wife and a mom. And, you know, maybe they have the job or whatever that they go to, but that they're not. It's almost the same reasons for a man. It's like they don't feel desired, but it's not it's not a, a matter of being desired sexually or physically necessarily, but desired as a as a dating partner, almost date me, you know, pursue me the way that you used to pursue me. You know, take me out, you know, um, send me sweet texts during the day like you used to when we were dating, those kinds of things. Instead of everything's become about the house, the kids the mar- and the, the business of marriage, so to speak. You think people have a tough time asking for what it is that they want? Yes. It's a big problem. I, I, I think... The um, therapist that I used to work for and um, and I took my sex certification classes through, she says that the more you talk about sex with your 
partnered, the better your sex is going to be. And I don't think people are comfortable asking for what they want or what they need or what they expect. You've written about anger. Yes. Nobody wants to hang around someone who cannot contain their rage. Can you talk about anger a little bit? Maybe its sources and what we can do to better manage anger? Okay. So anger gets a bad rep. Um, I don't like, like so many perceived negative emotions. It has been deemed as bad, right? It's something you have to get rid of something you need to push away. You can't feel angry. And that to me is BS. Anger is a, a good, it's adaptable feeling. It's adaptable emotion. It's kind of warns you against, you know, something that's wrong or something, an injustice of some sort. It, it's, it's a, it, evolutionary wise, it has helped us in the past. Where it becomes a problem is when the reaction is over an overreaction to what's happened. So you're punching walls, you're, you know, you're yelling, you're screaming, you're, you know, emotionally or physically hurting somebody in your presence, those kinds of things, or it's, it's debilitating and causing your own self to be depressed or sad or, or feeling bad about yourself because you have these overreactions to these things that it's, it's almost like the fight or flight, you know, you have this fight, a reaction to something that's not it's not warranted towards like it's not nothing you're not going to die if you don't get this angry and fight back but you do so why you know so I started I decided to go get my to get a certification in anger resolution mainly because Honestly, I, I was like, I need, I wanted to see if there was a niche I could go to, you know, um, couple wise, you know, I was having clients come in where, you know, stereotypically the man was the one that with the anger problem. And I was like, I don't know how to really, I, I don't have any knowledge of anger management or anger resolution and how to handle that. So I went and took some, you know, I took a certification class for that, but the first thing I do with my clients who come in for that is to kind of what we were talking about earlier, like preventative stuff. Now, if you're punching walls or hitting your spouse or something like that, the first thing is like, okay, we have to stop it. Like you just have to stop doing that. You have to walk away um, if you get to that point. But that's really hard to do when someone gets into a rage and can't so then you need to work on okay we need to talk about your triggers what what is pissing you off what are the kinds of things that are making you so mad what are your signs that it's getting to a point that you could explode what can you do differently let's talk about some times that you've exploded that you wish you hadn't what could you have done in those instances differently to kind of get you more self-aware of what you're doing I know for me I'm more irritable and easier to anger when I haven't slept well um, when I'm overwhelmed with things, you know, in life, like we all do, I know that I'm, I have a shorter fuse. I know that. 
So in order to prevent myself from blowing up, let's say at my children or my husband or something, I kind of will, I will one, let my husband know, like I'm, I'm struggling, like I'm having a hard time. Like, can you take the kids for a little while just so I can breathe and, 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 and meditate and, and think or whatever I need, I need headspace. Um, and he understands that he knows that's how I am. So when someone's having issues with anger, they're a lot of times not aware that of what those triggers are. They don't, they're like, I don't know. It just comes out of nowhere. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. There are things in your life that are leading you there. Um, and it's always, not always, but it's typically a secondary emotion. It's not a primary emotion. There's usually something underneath it. So then once we can get to the, get through the, um, initial stages of that also another good thing too is to realize and this is in trauma uh treatment as well that to tune into your body and what your body's doing when you're feeling that way as far as your you know when you're angry does your heart race do you get hot do you breathe heavily do you you know what can we do to minimize those symptoms first so you can get to a place where you can think clearly because you can't think clearly when all that's going on inside your body. And they call it um, bottom-up treatment. So you, you control the body first, the nervous system. And then once that can be more controlled and you can get that, then you go from top down and you talk about your thoughts and your and emotions and all the things that are going through your head. Then you can process all of that. But if you're in a state of fight... You, this is not working. The head's not working. Does that I'm make so, sense? Yes. I'm so <laughs> glad you talked about sensations in the body because I do believe that anger is often felt as heat in the yes. body and self-awareness has become in vogue now because so many people are not self-aware. And I think part of the reason is because we go from one task to another without spending much time thinking or reflecting nowadays. So, any idle moment we're jumping on our phones and we're scrolling and then we're opening another app and then we're checking our email and then we're yelling at our kids and then we're it's time to eat and then what time is soccer practice there's no time for pause and reflection and living in that mode of constantly going means that you don't take account of yourself you're not monitoring yourself and your own behavior and this is the sort of thing that meditation and journaling helps with. But people don't prioritize those activities mm -hmm. and therefore just get caught in this feedback loop of doing the same thing, just Groundhog Day every day, where they don't take time to prioritize these activities that might help them in this regard. There's an old Buddhist quote that says, holding on to anger is like grasping a hot coal with the intent of harming another. But it's you who ends up getting burned. Right. So these these exercises to help manage anger are so I can see them as being so helpful. Many of us are I don't think it's many of us, but some of us are natural at managing certain emotions. For me, anger is one of them. Most of the time, and I, I realize this is going to make me sound like a weirdo. Most of the time that I exhibit anger, it is manufactured to produce 
a desirable outcome. And if I do have true anger and a short fuse, it's because I have a headache. And my wife knows that. I often see emotions and thoughts like a well-manicured garden. And I know this is weird, but I can clearly differentiate between when someone's emotions are clouding their intellect. And I believe that I can see it so well because it is so well defined in my own mind. And so when an emotion comes on, I can use it to then fuel, let's say it's a rock garden with some grass and they're well-defined, well-trimmed, the grass is well-trimmed. If I want to take the sand, which represents emotion, and have it fuel my intellect, which is, which is the grass, I can push some of that sand into the grass. And I think that this is a learned skill. I think I was born with a lot of it, but it's also something that I've worked on and cultivated once you see it, once you can get there, you'll never go back to how you were. So when I was 12 years old, I did punch walls and I broke my hand and my wrist. And it was mostly I felt this heat in my body. I felt helpless. My life was out of control and there was nothing I could do about it because I was a kid. And so, as, as I'm sure you know, men tend to express their anger outwards. It's why we high five. It's why we pump our fists whereas women tend to feel it in their shoulders and in their chest. It's a, it's a completely different feeling. So I think because of the fact that we feel it differently, men might be able to get to where I'm talking about easier than women, to where we don't the, the thinking and feeling isn't conflated. But my concern is that we're teaching young boys to conflate thinking and feeling too, the same way that girls do, and it's contributing to this androgyny in our society, which I think contributes to more anger because we don't realize how we got to this place. And it stems from, I think, in our education system long ago, but that's another going down another avenue with our line of thinking. But often behind anger is frustration and fear and insecurity, lack of control. Mm-hmm. Um, Lack of control is a big one. Yeah. Some some anger management professionals say that it's not necessary to get into the feelings driving anger. Do you agree? Yes and no. I agree that you can't at first. When someone first comes into my office and they're, you know, emotionally abusing their wife or even physically abusing their wife or getting close to that point talking about their feelings and their past and where this anger is coming from isn't going to necessarily be helpful at first. Like I said, I think you have to start, start with the bottom up. You got to start with, okay, we need to learn how to calm you down when you're angry. We need to try to prevent you from getting to that angry spot first off. Then when you're thinking clearly, then we can talk about where's this coming from and we can process all of that with you. Um, I mentioned to you um, that if I could go back to school or go back to get another degree or get another certification or whatever, it would be in neuropsychology. And neuropsychology talks a lot about the bottom up and the top down um, methods. And when it comes to trauma and panic attacks and um, anxiety, 
um, about rewiring the brain. I think a lot of uh, men who have, and I say men because that's typically what we're talking about is a rageaholic type where it's almost, it's almost an addiction. The rage is an, almost an addiction. It changes the, the makeup of your brain and your brain is going to seek that feeling because even though we know that that rage is coming from a, maybe a feeling of lack of control when you're angry and you're lashing out, you feel control. Like you feel like you're in control. It's almost like saying the F word. If yeah. there's a release. Yes, like- there's a release to it. And your brain gets addicted to that, to that feeling. So it's like, do it again. Get pissed off again. You know, rage. You know, it feels good to rage. You feel shitty afterwards. Just like, you know, alcohol. You know, oh, you feel better when you're drunk. Next day you feel like crap, you know. So neuropsychology deals with a lot of those rewiring of the brain and the rewiring of the brain starts with breathing exercises and calming yourself down and rewiring your brain to be like, this is not really an emergency. You really don't need to punch a hole in the wall. That sounds a lot like transmuting of sexual energy. If you're going to rage, take that shit to the gym and start lifting some heavy weight. It's the same thing with sexual energy when you're horny and you want to, you want to hump the lampshade, get out of your house and go do something productive. Right. I want to expound on something I said earlier where I talked about anger being manufactured. Because I think some people might perceive that to be fake. Well, you're being fake. Well, you're not the same person with your buddies that you are at work. You're not the same person talking to me here today that you are with your kids. We all wear different masks at different times. We, yeah. we would be wise to try to engender the emotion required in certain aspects of our lives. We would, we would be better for it and create optimal outcomes. What I'm trying to say is that the emotion felt can be channeled and utilized for great good. I had a couple of clients recently negotiating their salaries. They just got offered new jobs. And he told me about his need to be honest. And I said, I wouldn't let honesty factor in. These are negotiating gambits. If you're expecting 120K salary and they offer you 130, you would be wise to act surprised when you get that offer not pleased if you repeat the number they give you and act shocked maybe imply that they lowballed you even though you're getting 10k more than you thought you would that is going to create the optimal outcome for you and your family so you would be wise to learn these sort of negotiation tactics it can benefit you in, in so many aspects of life if you pride yourself on being a calm person who's able to suppress emotion, that's fine. But you'll be better if somebody damages your car without insurance and you get really pissed off, even if you're not that pissed. If you think that you can get a $10,000 check out of them to, re- to repair your car. So if you say to them, oh, buddy, my lawyer is coming after you, you know, 
rather than, oh, it's, it's okay. You know, and you're, you don't feel the emotion. If you can manufacture the emotion or if you get, anyway, there are just so many different emotions that emotional intelligence to me is utilizing the emotion felt and channeling it toward the most optimal outcome. And I think that emotional intelligence should be taught in school for this reason. Because if worked on, you can separate the two to where you have this manicured garden to where they don't infuse, they're not conflated, they're separate. And when you feel an emotion, you can recognize it like, oh, that's the sensation that we have labeled with the word anger. Yes. And so here's my intellect over here. I know that the optimal outcome is, is for me to get $10,000 more dollars or, or whatever it is. And so... I'm going to use the emotion to, f and to, to create this energized focus of my intellect. Is that crazy? Have you, is any of this resonating at all? No, it's not crazy. I, I was just thinking when, when you were saying that, there's, uh, okay, I mentioned borderline personality disorder earlier, and I'm probably not going to give a thorough explanation of what it is, but, but someone who, who's been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder one of the biggest um, factors is that they can't um, uh, regulate their emotions. Um, usually they're overly emotional. Um, the treatment is dialectical behavioral therapy. It's a way to teach them to be more mindful and to, to be able to regulate their emotions and not react to everything on an emotional basis. It's what they, they want. The, the goal is to um, operate on a white, what they call wise mind. So you have the intellectual mind and you have the emotional mind and let's let's you know put those together so you can like you said emotional intelligence so to speak so you can intelligently respond emotionally <laughs> if that makes sense so i kind of feel or kind of seems like you're talking about the same thing but from the different point of view you're talking about this is how you don't think just intelligently you have to know when to put the emotion into the it's intelligence opposite, into the intelligence Yes. What this ability enables you to do, too, is you can tell when people are acting. You're not 100 percent with detecting bullshit and when somebody's lying. But people have terrible bullshit detectors nowadays. I can listen to someone and read their body language and hear the words that they're using. It's almost as if they're speaking in slow motion because I've studied this and observed it for so long. And I can call bullshit almost immediately where the nine people behind me can't see it. And I'm saying that once you get to the point where your garden is manicured, where intellect and sensation are separated, when you separate mind and body or realize how they're intertwined, then you, you see the world through a different lens where you're much less susceptible to being manipulated, for example, because interactions begin to happen in slow motion. And you realize, oh, this person can't separate emotion from intellect or, or they've never even tried to separate the two. They use the word thinking and feeling interchangeably as if they're the same thing. But feeling is a sensation in your body. But they've never taken the time to recognize that. They've not, they're not self-aware, as you mentioned earlier. So meditation, journaling, all these things that you can prioritize to get better in this regard, but also once you get better in this regard, understanding that most people are not interested in getting better. They're fine with walking through the world as they are. 
I think the goal is not to get rid, you know, to get rid of anger. It's to, to, um, redirect it into something useful, right? You know, if I'm angry about something, usually there's a reason there's some shit to be angry about in this world. Right. So, okay. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to act like an asshole and, and, you know, punch holes in walls? Are you going to be like, okay, I need to redirect this somewhere positive. Right. To the gym or to create an, creating an optimal outcome in whatever it is in a creative endeavor. Yeah. Am I going to interact? Yeah. Am I going to interact with this, with this anger or am I going to let it, it's almost like, um, objectifying it. Like you said, you know, uh, feelings are sensations within you. Well, can we get it out of us? You know, can we, can we look at it as a, as something else that's not inside of us? Can we detach ourselves emotionally and see ourselves as someone in the world? Like you're not your emotions. You're not your thoughts. You're not your, no, you're not your thoughts. You can't predict your next thought. Can you? No, we're always in our head. We're always talking in our head um, and that we don't even realize it. And it's, it's about bringing awareness to that. What are you saying to yourself? You're not your voice in your head either. That's right. That's why The Power of Now is a book that everyone That's should another read one by I, Eckhart Tolle. I started reading. That. In the now, every anxiety or stress you have disappears. Yeah. You're entirely focused on this conversation. You're yes. not worried about anything else going on outside of this room. This is a meditative experience. Right. That is the power of now. You're so immersed in this moment that you have no other stress and anxieties. It's almost like an animal, like a dog going through the world. They're not worried about the memories they've accumulated through their lives. It's not keeping them down. They're living in the now, the ever-present now. You could get there, too, as a human, but it takes some work. And it takes consistent work. You can't just meditate twice this week and once (laughs) next week. You have to do it consistently. Which, which, let's be honest, a lot of people don't do because it is time. Con- I mean, it's it's time that people don't want to take. Like they don't prioritize it, like you said. And I'm I'm first to say that I'm guilty of that. So that's what yoga does for me. It gives me that time out to go and and concentrate on that part of my life. One of the red pills in life too is to see how much society doesn't benefit from you getting a handle on this stuff. Because the COVID-19 situation would be a wonderful opportunity for our betters. I use that in quotes and with a laughing emoji. But our, our government officials could be encouraging us to practice gratitude every day. Nobody's telling us to, to eat well and that the comorbidities of this disease are X, Y, and Z. And if you just get sun and, and eat meat and do all these things that are good for our health, then you can avoid being getting sick and dying and and there's a reason that they're not sharing that with us i believe an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure kind of thing right yeah we live in a a hyper consumption society and if people were not in need of anything right happiness is the absence of desire and we meditated 20 minutes a day and we weren't stressed and and wanting to buy things to placate ourselves and our in our anxiety 
know, a lot of people do what's called retail therapy, right? They go mm-hmm. to the mall when they feel bad and they just spend money and we buy new cars every couple, three, two or three years. And all of that drives a consumer society, which is about growth and growing the standard of living so that we can live in not 1,200 square foot houses like we lived in 20, 30 years ago. Now we live in 2,400 square foot houses. We've doubled the size of our houses. But on average, how much happier are we? We're not. Well, nobody's teaching us that happiness is tied to gratitude. That's not something we're taught in school. By the way, we're not taught in school how to have a romantic relationship. No. What's more important than the relationship with our significant other? Why doesn't school teach us that? I was clueless in my 20s. Me and my buddy used to say, I remember he got in a a fight with his wife one time. And he told her, why can't you just be like Brad? Like, Brad is so chill. He doesn't get upset about anything. (laughs) And she was like, why don't you marry Brad? And he was (laughs) like, if if he had, you know what, you know, maybe I would. Yeah. But it just shows the ignorance of that he and I had about women. We just didn't understand women at all. And it's different when you're dating in high school and college because I had a high school college sweetheart. It's totally different when you become an adult and you become responsible for bills and and kids later and all of the stresses and anxieties that that comes with. There's a... um a psychologist that is like the biggest guru in relationship um, therapy worlds is John Gottman. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Heard of him, yeah, but not familiar with his work. He has this the, the statistic that says that 67% of problems in marriage and relationships are perpetual. They will never be solved. I'll tell my clients this. And they look at me like, you're going to give us that like negative bullshit. (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? Like, what are we, you know, why are we here? Like, why are we even trying? And, but what I tell them and what he says is that that 67%, you could divorce the person you're with, you marry somebody else. You're going to have 67% of your problems with that person. They might be different problems, but they're going to be perpetual too. So either learn how to to, uh, negotiate those problems and understand those problems and speak about those problems in a way that where you accept them for what they are and accept the person for who they are or move on and have to do it with somebody else. Do you think some people reconcile that they are going to have the same problems in their next relationship, but at least they'll get the year and a half to two years of passion and animalistic sex? Maybe. I don't know if they're aware of it. Like we, you know, they're not aware that's what they, what they're doing. I remember Jennifer Lopez saying one time that, She's addicted to falling in love. And so that's why every two years or so she jumps into a new relationship. She understands. Well, maybe she I don't know if she understands this, but you're going to have the same problems with the next person. The the grass is greener where you water it. But at least you're getting the two years of trips to Paris. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, But that's and it's not even necessarily that it's going to be the same problems. And one of the things about like in my marriage my husband's not a planner. Like he's just, he's so easygoing that he just doesn't care. He's just like, yeah, I'll go along for the ride. When I first met him, that was like the best trait ever. You know, I like, oh, he's so laid back. He's so chill. Like he's just so down to earth. And I still love that about him, but it does drive me crazy sometimes. I'm like, why do I have to be the one sailing the ship all the time? So I could go and try to find another husband that was more of a take charge and planned everything. But then I'd be pissed that I didn't have any say in it. That's what I mean. You you negotiate. You say, okay, this is something that's not a deal breaker for me. 
does it get on my nerves? Yeah. But it's not a deal breaker. It's something I can accept about him. It's who he is. I love him for that. It's interesting because I am the leader in our household. But I wouldn't say I'm the leader. I'm just when it comes to like vacations, he's not going to come to me and say, you know what? I really want to go to Mexico next next year. I'm going to start looking at flights. That's just not he's he's not that person. If I go to him and I say that, he'll be like, mm, maybe I have to do all the research, show it to him. Da, 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 da. So in that respect, I'm the leader, but I'm not the leader. Mm. We're pretty. I don't want to say 50 50 because it's not it's. He's a leader of other things. Because I wonder how much of a shift will occur after we have a child in January. What do you mean? Well, women make something like 70% of consumer decisions. Whereas right now, I'm the planner, the budgeter. I've got her on board with it. We track our expenses so that we can make certain savings and investments every month. But she's going to need things for the baby that I'm not even going to be aware of. And so I just see her, more of the decisions shifting to her. Are you okay with that? Oh, yes. A hundred percent. Unless it's a big ticket item, of course. But I just see a shift after kids because the man is out. And I'm stereotyping, of course, but out conquering the world, whereas she's spending more time with the kids and is more aware of what it is that they need, like yeah. vacations. If she believes that the kids need a vacation, she might be more aware of that than me. Yeah. And I could see her saying, hey, we haven't been to Cancun in a while. Whereas right now, it's more me trying to ensure that there's spontaneity and something to look forward to and, and that sort of thing. It's more... Romantic. I think men are a lot more romantic than women, contrary to popular belief. I agree. Esther Perel talks about um, romantics versus realists. And the romant in, in her book, the romantics are the ones that believe once passion is gone, the relationship is over, the love is gone. And then the realists are the ones that are like, no, that's going to fade. Like you have to have that security, you have to have that foundation for it to last. And but I would say that the women more fall in the realist in that situation the men fall more in the romanticism of it like you said like men are i think have a more romanticized idea of what love is it, which is weird because men are usually more logical but when it comes to love i think y'all are a little more unrealistic in in her definition do you agree disagree well women have a biological need to quote-unquote settle down, mm -hmm. whereas a man can be 48 years old and marry for the first time a 28-year-old. Right. Women are most appealing to men at around age 80. Or 80. Yeah, I don't <laughs> know if that's age, true. <laughs> around age 23, and a man is most desirable to most women at around mid-30s. It is a woman's imperative to find a man that can provide it used to be provisioning but now stability and security and i think that you're not going to beat back thousands of years of evolutionary history to accommodate a woman's desire to now have a 
graduate degree and high-powered career or decide after her party years that she wants to settle down. Because when that happens in her 30s, when she is then less desirable to a man who's in his mid-30s, she's then competing in the sexual marketplace with women who are 23, 24, 26, 27. And it's just one of those cruel aspects of life where women have it all at age 23 and have their pick of the litter. And then as they get older, their options wane and therefore will seek the, find a suitable potential partner as the pool of potential partner shrinks. Whereas for a man, that pool grows. I was cheated on twice in my 20s. I've said this publicly more than once. So I apologize for repeating myself. But in both cases, she married that man both times. Well, I wasn't ready to settle down and get married. One of them, I remember telling me, she said, you didn't love me. And so she found this man who was more successful than me who I guess fell for her quickly. We had only been dating for like maybe four or five months. And she accidentally called me from her Blackberry and was with that guy. And they were making plans for that night. And I called her afterward and I was like, hey, what are you up to tonight? And she lied. She, she lied. And then she started crying when I called her out. And she said, well, you didn't love me. You never loved me. I'm like, we've only been dating for four or five months. Well, anyway, she was married to that guy quickly thereafter. It was actually the guy who did her breast augmentation. Interesting. Yeah. The doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why keep fiddling around with me? I think her hypergamous nature led her to the most optimal situation for her. And that happens a lot. I think your 20s is the height of sexual selection strategy and i think a lot of men who are 20 something years old are going to get left for someone who Who's is more, more secure yes women value things like income and status and men tend to value things like youth yeah and innocence well i mean why do you think the youth industry and, and the the cosmetic industry makes so much money you know, marketing to women to look younger. One of the reasons why is because they want to be, they still want to be desirable to men. Well, why, what other reason would you care if you had wrinkles, but you want people to think that you look young and that's not just men. I mean, I think that's society as a whole that they value youth and. We don't teach people how to attract suitable mates anymore. And boys are, are playing video games into their 30s and smoking marijuana every night. You're getting the milk without buying the cow. So couples are moving in together. And it's, it's a net negative for society. Because from what I understand, most couples who live together prior to marriage don't do as well as those who don't. I've tried... That's been, that's been a long-standing statistic. Even when I... I mean, see, I graduated college in 2003, so... How many years ago was that? 17 years ago? They, I don't know if anybody's updated that research. It, it used to be that if you lived together before marriage, you were more likely to get divorced. Um, this is kind of p going back to what we talked about earlier, but um, about you asked me, you know, when couples come in, is it their 
do anyone, does anyone come in and to prevent getting divorced? People will come in and they think my job is to save their marriage, right? I would argue their job is to save their marriage. But also you have to define what you want in your marriage to, to be able to be able to say, yes, it was successful yet. No, it's not successful. I can, as your therapist, to help you stay together and not get divorced, but are you going to be happy or are you going to have a successful marriage now? Because some people I've heard this from a few clients. Well, my ex-husband and I went to therapy, but it didn't work because we ended up divorced. I'm like, maybe it did work. Maybe that's why you're divorced because you realize this is a shit show and I don't want to be part of it. I, I don't want to, you know, be a proponent for divorce because obviously when someone, a couple comes in, my goal is to try to have, teach them to have a healthy, happy marriage. But if they can't, I'm not going to try to keep them together. It's just not my job to try to keep them together. Like They need to realize what they want and, you know, who they are. And I think a lot of marriage counseling is a lot about them discovering things about themselves because it's really easy and it happens almost every time they'll come in and it's like this person needs to do this and this and this and this and they don't even talk about what they they need to do and it's like it's a two-way street even if that person cheated there's something about the relationship that needs to be fixed and maybe not about you but something about the way y'all are interacting needs to be talked about it's not your fault or they made the decision to step out of the relationship. That's not your fault. But what is in what is wrong with the relationship that we can talk about? Let's not talk about what's wrong with him and what's wrong with you. But what's wrong with the relationship? Let's take it outside of yourselves a little bit. Well, I think it's a problem that we hold up happiness in a relationship as such a high value. Because you can always be happier Right. And one of the problems that people have is not realizing what other couples are going through. Mm -hmm. You don't know if you fighting twice a week is normal. You don't know if having sex once a month is normal. You have no idea. Most people aren't sharing details of their relationship with others. Now, you get the benefit of hearing everyone's problems at least to the extent that they're telling you the truth. Right. Which can be hard to decipher, I imagine. Mm. But even still, this this modern emphasis on happiness, I think, is misplaced. Because, as Pearl said in Mating in Captivity, the survival of an entire family depends on a couple's happiness. Is that is that how we should be viewing it because people have different views of happiness like we say unthinkingly well this person makes me happy well you're responsible for your own happiness somebody I else agree. can't make you happy mm -hmm. oh but he makes me so happy well what happens when he's not making you happy are you going to then step out of the marriage yeah it puts it as at a um on a contingency like if the, uh, the the marriage or the relationship is only going to survive contingent on the, how much ha how, how happy I am. Yeah, well, we, you could be unhappy because of a chemical imbalance in your brain. I would also argue it's not that person's job to make you happier. 
because well, you're depressed or you're, you know, it's, it's up to you to say, I'm not happy. Why am I not happy? Let's explore this as a, as a couple, but actually, actually I want to explore it as myself. Why am I not happy? Why am I not satisfied? Well, one of the reasons I delayed marriage so long was because I so rarely ran into a happily married man. And when people have bought into this happy wife, happy life trope, it places the, the woman's happiness well above his. Why is her happiness so much more important than, than yours, bud? You say that, too, but you can also look at it this way. It's also saying that it, it also implicates that a woman is harder to keep happy than a man. Like, y'all are so simple <laughs> that it's not, not, not much to keep you happy. So you need to worry about your wife being happy. So it's not, yes, it maybe puts it like her happiness above yours, but it assumes that you're easier to please. Well, we, we are generally, <laughs> and we shouldn't live our lives by the whims of someone's emotions. If the woman stereotypically has less control of her emotions, then we shouldn't place the happiness of the relationship on, the, on that person who has less control of their emotions. If she were to cultivate this ability to separate thought from feeling then we would both be happier. You're responsible for that yourself. So go to work, please. <laughs> uh, what a great discussion. Have you caught on to the fact that women in places like London, Buenos Aires, New York City, LA, with high-powered careers who missed the husband and kids phase are also on the most antidepressant-type medications? Is that something that you've read? like I have no actually it's not but it's not um I don't think that that fits a I would like for you to show me where that is but it doesn't it's because I've read some stuff that say that or you know there's I think there was an article on psychologytoday.com not too long ago talking about how it's actually a myth that women who don't have children are unhappy so it's what it doesn't fit a narrative, I guess. What you're saying doesn't fit the narrative. Like uh, society wants us to believe that like women can have it all. We can be, or we can, you know, we can choose. Which we can. We can choose what we want. But that y you can be married. You can have kids. You can have a high power career. You can have all those things. But and and you can. But are you going to be happy? So. Are you going to be overly stressed? So women who are, like you said, um, and these other, you know, high powered and who don't have children who skipped marriage and all of that, and they're not happy. I don't know. It seems like there's it, it, it seems like women in general aren't, aren't happy, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at in any situation. That could be due to comparison on social media, for example. Maybe. Um. You know, because I look at someone, you know, I have two young kids. I look at someone who doesn't have kids and they might be married or not be married, but they're, if they're out doing whatever they want, they have, you know, uh, more free. I mean, even someone like yourself who travels all the time. So I can't, you know, at this point in my life do that whenever I want. Um, 
so yeah, there's some envy there. So you see, oh, well, they're, they must be happier than me. Like that, maybe I shouldn't have gone the route in life that I went, you know, or I don't know. And then people who are single and uh, at my age and look at my life and say, oh, she's got two, you know, precious kids and a husband and, and stability and all these great things. And they might be jealous of me. It's like, like you said, grass is greener where you water it. You know, you make the most out of your situation. I'm curious to see that study to see if that's, if that's the. Well, it probably just coincides with who can afford anti-anxiety Also medication. too, yeah, right? <laughs> Seriously. And it's those making all the money. But they're, but they're, I mean, if they're high powered and in high powered positions, yeah, they're probably under a lot of pressure too. Um, I think that there's a lot of housewives that are sitting at home on, on anti-anxiety medicines because it's a different kind of pressure. Let's talk about communication because I do have a few listener questions I want to okay. get to. One thing I'm curious about, many people use career social media accounts mm-hmm. to communicate with their clients mm-hmm. or prospective clients especially. But I've noticed you don't advertise anything on social media. Why is that? Two reasons. One, I'm a compartmentalizer. Um, I like to compartmentalize my life as much as possible. That's how I deal with stress and anxiety. So when I'm at work, I'm at work. When I'm at home, I'm at home. Uh, Social media tends to infiltrate throughout your life. So I am on social media for social aspects, but that's more mindless stuff, you know, stuff that I don't have to like think about. I can be funny. I can be myself. I don't have to be professional. If I were to put professional stuff out, you have to maintain a level of professionalism that I just don't have the energy to do when I'm not at work. (laughs) And I don't want to expend my energy in that way. Um, I do wish that I could or and I think at one point at some point I will once my children are a little bit older, spend more time on on doing blogs and writing articles and doing research Right now, it's just not where I'm putting my energy. Um, when I'm with my clients, I'm with my clients. I'm present. I'm there. When I'm not, I'm not. I have a question from Kyle in Houston. You ready for a listener question? Sure. He says, my situation is unique, so without multiple sessions, I don't know that she'll be able to answer my questions. He first wants me to describe his situation to you, okay. so I'll do that. His wife left him out of the blue. She had been having issues but failed to communicate them. Part of it was lack of confidence in herself. She felt like a failure, which impacted our relationship, he says. She said it was over between them, but three weeks later asked to move back in while she figures things out. She recently said that she loves him, but is still sleeping in the guest bedroom and still won't communicate about her feelings. She tells friends that things are going well, but still withdraws when he tries to touch her. So his question is, what can a husband do to try and get his wife to communicate with him more effectively. My first question to him would be, if he was in front of me, is what have you done so far to try to communicate with her? Is she communicating? Ask yourself, is she communicating in a way that you're just not hearing? Um, I think we all communicate differently. A book I would recommend for him is the um, Five Love Languages. So the five love languages are words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. I think one way to maybe get her going on talking is to go to the website, fivelovelanguages.com, and the five is the number five, not the written out word. 
and have her take the quiz. Take it separately from her. You take it and her take it. Come together and discuss what you got, what your love languages are, and maybe that will open up a discussion on how she needs to be loved and how she needs to be shown love and how you need to be shown love. I've taken the quiz myself. I got words of affirmation, my husband's acts of service. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, he's probably never going to be very doting with his words. Uh, He's not, he tells me he loves me, but he's not going to sit there and tell me all the reasons why he loves me, which is what people from words of affirmation like. They want to know why you love them. What's so great about me, you know? Um, and people with acts of service, they just want people to do things for them, unload the dishwasher, um, you know, wash their car, take their car to get gas, whatever. And I started noticing like, that's what my husband does. That's how he shows me. He loves me. And I started receiving that. So she may be telling him that she loves him in other ways, or she may be trying to communicate to him that she's having a hard time in other ways. Um, if she says she loves you, but if she isn't showing it in the way that you receive it, then maybe this will open up a dialogue about that. Like, Hey, I don't, you say you love me. I don't feel it. This is what I see you doing. Is that, does that mean that you do? If you say you do, does that hers might be words of affirmation. So she's saying, I love you. She's saying it. That's how she, she communicates it on the flip side. If her, hers is words of affirmation and she's not talking about her feelings, then her saying she loves you may not be accurate, if that makes sense. Because if she does love you and, that, and words of affirmation are her language, then she would be expanding on that. She yeah. would be talking about her feelings. And we don't know if she said, I love you first. I have this theory that women love easily. They tell their 15th best friend that they love them. If he said, I love you, and she said, I love you, too, how many men have not heard I love you, too, when they say that they love a woman, especially for the first time? I mean, it's it's pretty much automatic. You almost have to be an asshole to say, oh, you love me? Thank you. <laughs> but it reminds me of a story from Mating in Captivity, the story of Noriko from Japan. He was an American, and his wife spoke no English, and oh. their courtship was literally speechless. Twelve years and two kids later... They say not being able to talk made their relationship possible. And I think that's so awesome. My thinking with, and then this is how it kind of goes off of the, how narcissistic people can be is like, I'll have my clients take this quiz and then they think, oh, well now she knows my, or he knows my love language. So he needs to speak it, you know? And I'm like, mm, yes, but you also need to receive it the way he loves you. If his is, acts of service well then you need to start paying attention to when he's speaking an acts of service if you married someone who spoke a different language than you would you expect them to just learn your language and you wouldn't try to com- communicate with them in their language at all no you would try to learn each other's language and speak an, you know what i'm saying it's an excellent point and in our modern world we've come to glorify verbal communication as if it's the only language right. And Peril talks about this in her book, but we believe that our essence is most accurately conveyed through words. But we just gave an example of a couple who went speechless for a long time. 
and they could see their faces light up and they could demonstrate love by cooking with each other, giving each other baths, which is popular in Asia. But too much self-revealing talk where you are sharing feelings, deeply held feelings about yourself, we think is what women want, for example. But a lot of times when a man shares his weaknesses and vulnerabilities, although the woman may say that she wants that at the time, the man has to be the macro thinker in this situation and think long term. Is it, is, is it in your best interest to continually share your vulnerabilities to your wife? She may think that over time you're pathetic and lose well, and respect I, for you. Let me interject. When I think that it is desirable for women to want their men to be vulnerable and open up. I think that in any relationship, even a relationship with my friends, if I want them to be vulnerable and open up to me and be able to tell me their feelings and, and have deep conversations and whatnot, do I want to do that every day? Do I want to call my friend Heather every day and talk about the meaning of life? No. Sometimes I just want to call and chat. Same with your husband or your spouse. You want them to be able to be vulnerable with you. Do you want them to sit down every night and be like, okay, let's talk about our feelings? I don't think anybody wants to do that. Well, I know guys who sit and talk in circles with their wives for two and three hours some nights. Because their wives have requested it? Yes. Yes. And I tell them, you need to have a higher purpose. Tell her to call one of her girlfriends. 30 minutes is enough. Because our inherent nature is to solve the issue. If you don't so want to what? work through it linearly and and find the root cause of the problem so that we can come to a solution, then that's fine. I'll, I'll speak your language. We'll, we'll talk about feelings and emotions. But I understand, too, that it's going to be talking in circles. And if we haven't resolved anything within an hour, then I, I've got other things that, that need to be done. Like, I'm a, I'm a man. I, I have... I value things like an accountability and, and competitiveness and conquering the world and providing and provisioning for this family. Collectively, if we spend seven hours doing this weekly and multiply seven times four, 28 hours a month, which is 300 hours a year doing this, this, this doesn't lead us to a better place. I think it's the, in the best interest of our relationship long term if I tell you after 45 minutes, I'm giving you another 15 minutes and then we got to go our separate ways. Call your girlfriend. There is going back to John Gottman. It's about 30 minutes and you talk about the ins and outs of the week. What's going to happen. That's when you talk about like some rough things that you've had during, you know, the week or some things you've, you've felt about the other person in the week. You time it for 30 minutes. You're done. There's there's no sizzle being generated between you when you connect through verbal communication unless there's some sexual well, anticipation. Yeah, well then there's anticipation in it. You know, like every conversation you have with your the person you're dating when you first start dating is an, an anticipation of being together physically. I'm talking about like on the phone. Because I mean, people aren't talking on the phone anymore. But I get well, what well, you're you know, saying. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, showing my age. I mean, I'm my husband and fast... I stayed on the phone together, you know, till three in the morning the first time we talked on the phone. 
but that was an anticipation that we knew we were going to see each other in two days. So it was like, oh, let's, let's like, I'm so excited about it. I just want to talk to you, talk to you, talk to you. But we didn't have problems to solve then, if that makes sense. It makes sense. What I'm saying is the fastest way to the friend zone to get yourself a girlfriend as a young man dating is to continue talking, to continue (laughs) sharing everything about yourself. You're earning yourself a girlfriend, not a lover. Lover. Thank you. I can see that. People believe that when they share their most personal and private feelings, that it's bringing them closer. And if if we're not talking, then we're not close. But I like to say with my wife, a lot of times there's a completed solitude when we're together. We can go a whole two-hour car ride without speaking to each other. Whereas I know some people, and I just learned this about one of my buddies who, who talks constantly. He told me that if he's hanging out with someone and there's no talk, if there's silence, he starts to believe that they're not having a good time and therefore starts talking. And I couldn't believe that somebody could be wired that way. I mean, to me, it's an indication of insecurity if you feel like somebody has to be talking at all times. And this relates to what we were talking about earlier with negotiation. You need to be the one if you're going to create the most optimal outcome for yourself. You need to be comfortable with silence. And a lot of people are not because we're anxiety ridden. No, I have a a professor um, in grad school who's also a therapist, obviously, and he he was notorious or, or said he was notorious for sitting in silence with his clients. Like, because his clients are very uncomfortable with that too. They're, they feel like they have to talk. And that's part of the therapy he does is like, I'm just going to let them since if they're not going to talk, I'm not going to talk. He's like, I've done whole 30, 45 minutes with, without talking. Gottman also says that, relationships and this goes along with what kind of what you're saying is like not in the deep conversations that we think we need to have in order to have like a enriching marriage it's in the little bitty things that happen all day long that aren't even necessarily verbal he calls them bids for affection so if i'm married to you and i offer you a cup of coffee in the morning and you don't hear me because you're too busy on your phone you just missed a bid for connection Um, if I am looking out the window and I say, oh, it's, it's a beautiful outside today and you don't say anything and keep reading your newspaper, newspaper, like people read those anymore, or you, you know, just grunt about it and don't really listen, then that's a misfit for communication and for connection. And we do this all the time to each other. I mean, just taking the person for granted, it sounds like. Yeah. But he says... You have to have for every negative bid for connection that happens because some people turn away. There's turning away from bids. There's turning against bids, which is like angry. There's, you know, ignoring them. Um, He says, you know, for every one that's ignored or every one that's turned against, there should be five positive ones. And that's the optimal goal for a happy marriage and it's not in these like huge conversations because i had i have a cl- or i had a client that would him and his wife aren't you know aren't doing well and he's like oh you know i on valentine's day i did this huge grand gesture thing it was a scavenger hunt it was really romantic it was really nice and he's saying it i'm like oh that's so nice you're that's so, you know 
But like I told him, I'm like, you can't just not do shit the whole year or, you know, six months and then just this grand gesture and think that that's going to last you for the next six months. Like you got to do little things. It doesn't have to be big things every single day. It's not the big things that matter. It's the consistency. Yeah, men don't think that way usually. Well, we- no, but part of it is because you watch movies and you see these, I don't know. Society says like women want these grand gestures and women think they do too. You know, there's so many romantic movies. I'd look at it in a different way now. I guess that I'm older, maybe wiser or because I'm a therapist and I look at some of these romantic comedies or these men do these grand gestures. I'm like, I would think that somebody was like psychotic if they did that. It's not normal. Like I wouldn't, that would not attract me to somebody. If someone showed up and like threw rocks at my window in the middle of the night. But maybe when I was younger, it would have. I don't know. So Kyle has more questions. He says, what is the best way to cure a lack of intimacy between a husband and wife? Go see a therapist to help you with that. Um, Because there's not a one one shot solution to that. Um, there's going to be things that you need to explore as to why. And what kind of intimacy are you speaking of? Are you talking about physical intimacy? Are you talking about, you know, the friendship part of your relationship? There's three major components of a relationship is passion, commitment, and intimacy. And passion and intimacy are two different things on that scale. Passion is the physical. Intimacy is the friendship. So are you missing the friendship or are you missing the passion? Or both. He says, how patient should he be on giving her free reign on whether she wants to stay or go? Now, remember, she's moved into the house three weeks ago, but stays in a separate bedroom of her choosing, not his. You think he's have, she's having an affair? Especially with the touch part. If, if she's resisting his touch I and she moved out. I think it's rare that a woman would leave without having something else lined up. I always talk Um, about the roster running in the back of her brain. I think if it sounds to me that she moved out on maybe an impulse and whatever that impulse was behind that impulse. I don't know, but it sounds like she figured out like, Ooh, I did that way too soon and way too knee jerk reaction. And I need to go back and figure it out, but she doesn't know how. As far as giving her free reign on whether she decides to leave or go or how much patience he needs, that's hard. It, it depends on how much he wants to give. Because why Why does he not have any control over whether she stays or goes? Yeah, she's not staying in my house without staying in my bed. Well, no fucking way. Well, and, and why, why, why does she feel the need to be in another room? Maybe it's a money thing. I don't know. He, he thinks that she enjoys the stability of living at the house but you, and that you could mentioned be. how much is he willing to give well it sounds like he's given a whole lot no it seems like he's given a lot of patience so far um i think that he needs to get her into like some counseling with him or even just by herself to figure out what she wants and in the meantime and i've told a lot of not a lot of my clients, but a few of my clients that are in a kind of a similar situation to that 
where it's they're kind of just waiting around for the other person to decide whether or not they they're going to stay together. They give that power to them. I a lot of times I'm like, go about your life as if that person's already made that decision. For instance, I had a I had two clients, um, a couple who they got separated. He started another relationship and then they got back together and but he was still like in contact with this other woman and whatnot. So they were just trying to decide if they were going to work it out. They couldn't decide. They couldn't decide. It was basically they were both waiting for the other person to pull the trigger. Neither one of them wanted to be the bad guy that ended the relationship. So she came in by herself and she's like, I'm afraid that if I, you know, end it, he will use it against me later. Well, you're the one that ended it. She didn't want to be the one that was blamed for it. And I said, you know what? I understand what you're saying. There's going to be a day. I don't know when, but there's going to be a day that you don't give two rats asses if he blames you later. And sure enough, a week later, she left him. She was done. He came in my office a week after that, bawling. I want her back. I want her back. How do I get her back? And I said he was missing work. He wasn't eating. He was just beside himself. I said, well, why don't you start with going to work, start with eating, taking good care of yourself and be a person that she would want to be with. She's not going to want to be with someone who's not taking care of themselves. Take care of yourself and maybe she'll come back. Maybe she won't. Either way, you're a better person and you're living your better life and you can be better for somebody else who comes along. You know, great advice. Neediness is almost always a turnoff. Let's do a few more listener questions. Okay. Tristan from Ohio, as someone who's been in a long distance relationship going on a year, what are some tips moving forward before we finally get a place together? Cohabitating is very common these days. I've yes. done it and I've not done it. You've done I think it anyway. not moving in together before marriage is better. But what do you think? Well, statistics show that um, living together before marriage is actually you're more likely to get divorced. If you're going to cohabitate, I would treat it as sort of as a marriage. Prepare for it the way that you would prepare for a marriage. You need to you need to talk about your finances. You need to talk about gender roles and what you expect of the other partner. Anything that you would talk about in premarital therapy. In premarital therapy, we talk about spirituality and religion and how are we going to deal with conflict? How have we dealt with conflict up until now? Has it worked? You know, what is our what is our relationships going to be like with our families, our extended families? Like treat it as a marital situ type situation instead of a, well, we're just going to be roommates and have sex, but otherwise we're roommates. No, you're in a, some sort of contract, right? I would say for women, don't give a boyfriend wife privileges. At least that's what I'll be teaching my daughter. Should I have <laughs> one someday? I'm serious. The, what are the wife privileges? Well, there needs to be a plan that she's indeed going to be a wife. If you're moving in together for financial reasons, that's fine. But what's the plan for marriage? I hope to have a good enough relationship with my prospective son-in-law that that conversation takes place. Like you want to ask for her hand in marriage, that's fine. But you need to be asking for her hand in cohabitation because in some states that is marriage. 
it's common law. Right. And that's, I mean, and that's assuming that's, that's what she wants. I mean, if she wants, if down the road, your listener, if she particularly wants to get married, then yeah, that that needs to be a conversation she has with him. Is like, is this a road to marriage or is this just a stop by for the next thing? You know, Um, that's, that's just assuming that's what she wants. If she doesn't want to get married and she does, it's strictly financial then. But she said long distance, right? It's a he. Yes. He said long distance. Okay. Which leads to the next Oh, question. okay. See, I thought it was a she. So he needs to find out from her if her end goal is marriage. And if it is and his isn't? Well, men will take it, take it as it is, I'm sure. I mean, it's a chance to save money. It's a chance to get all the benefits of marriage without a written contract without right. it being recognized in the eyes of the state which is another but, argument but if he says yeah if she says yeah I, I want you to end up marrying me one day if I'm going to move in with you and he's like has any doubts of whether he wants to end up married to her save yourself a lot of trouble and don't move in with her because you're going to get you're going to hear that from like week one like when is this ring when is this ring coming and if you're not ready for marriage and you don't see yourself marrying this person and you know that's her end game don't waste her time which leads to the next question from nicole she says how can you convert a commitment phobe my gut reaction does you can't agree you um, don't you they have to decide that they want to be committed. And if the, at this point, if they don't want to be committed to you, like I've told clients, like act like you don't want to be committed to them either. They'll decide real quick if they want to. Easier said than done. But yes, if you're a woman, and again, if I have a daughter, <laughs> I would advise them to scram if he's not talking about marriage within 18 i'm gonna say a year to two years because you are wasting your time a man will know if he wants to marry you when did you know you wanted to marry your wife or that you would eventually want to marry her there's an old jewish saying that says you'll find your wife once you make up your mind that you want to marry and so i made up my mind when i like build it and they will come kind of thing yes (laughs) In my mid-30s, one of the things that I had my mindset to was that I would travel with them because you really get to know somebody. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about travel for six or seven days. I mean, we traveled like for, for months at a right. time, right? You really get to know somebody. I also thought in traveling with someone, it's the passion doesn't take 18 months to two years in that situation, right? Because you're spending 24-7 with them. I don't know that this I'm that firm on this, but I like the idea of getting to the end of that passion, which on average takes 18, to two, 18 months to two years, where you're like rabbits. I like to see you get to the end of that phase to know that you're willing to put the work in if it mm-hmm. needs it. Yeah. And so it's not just all emotion. As we know, people didn't always marry for love, right? It used right. to be arranged or it was a financial, it was for the family or the farm or the, a financial arrangement or 
however, but it wasn't people thought you were too stupid, too riled up emotionally to make a decision for the rest of your life based on these ecstatic feelings that you feel about somebody else, these animalistic feelings that you have. For that reason, when did I know? Well, I had a good inkling when we first started dating, but I wanted to make sure that we traveled well together and that we fought well and we're kind of past the initial at each other's, you know, tearing each other's clothes off every, you know, twice yeah, a day. Yeah, is there something of substance there after right. that's gone? Yeah. Yeah, like you're going to be eating with someone. You're going to share a meal with them something like 40,000 times. <laughs> 520th meal together. How do you feel? Like, do you enjoy their company? Yeah. So that's important. Yeah. So did we answer the person's question? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's not that into you. I'm sorry to break it to you, but yeah, if he's not committing, he's not that into you. No, no offense, but men are kind of lazy. If someone's busy pursuing them, they don't feel the need to pursue back. So if you stop pursuing, then maybe, you know, maybe he'll turn around and be like, oh crap, I'm going to lose her. Maybe I need to step up my game. If he doesn't, then yes, he's probably just not, he's not ready and he's just not the one for you right now. Yeah, it's interesting to see courtship go out the window nowadays because if you are still old school trying to date, like go out to dinner and a movie or something on a first date, nowadays women expect that men will be pursuing more than one woman at a time. It's so easy to swipe apps, for example. Mm -hmm. So they meet for drinks for an hour or two and then next night meet somebody else for an hour or two. It's not uncommon for people to have multiple sex partners. And so I think it freaks women out when someone puts focus on you in an old school way. And then once the man retreats, then, yeah, a lot of times she will say, well, why is he not pursuing me? But but what my friends have found is that the woman rarely wants to be the sole focus of a man initially it's almost like you know men are more invested prior to sex and then women become more invested after, after sex sex changes everything women want to feel connected typically want to feel connected in order to have sex and men like to have sex to get to feel connected does that make sense like you don't need like men don't really necessarily need the pre-connection <laughs> well that's definitely like i feel connected to you so i want to have sex with you well i don't feel connected to you so i don't you know i don't know well maybe I, th I think there's some animalistic tendencies on both sides yeah. probably due to the sexual liberation of women if i was on a date with a woman that i really liked i didn't want to pursue her sexually so much because i wanted a respectful sort of courtship that I had when I was young it doesn't work that way anymore I am I feel like our generation was probably the last generation that had that because we didn't what we didn't get internet I didn't get a cell phone until I was in college I think I was 19 and then I didn't I mean I used the internet but like I never I was I've never been on a dating app um, I met my husband when I was 23 um, we got married when I was 27, 28 almost. So I'd never experienced any of that online dating. Yeah. And, and they, I'm 
happy I didn't. I know. Can you imagine <laughs> all the options that people have? You know, 20% of men are dating like the top 70% of women. The guys who are sevens don't get any action on apps at all. And so we've become so superficial that people look for those who would look good in pictures. Yeah. But there's all these filters and stuff. I mean, I can make myself look 25 and with a fil- with a good filter, you know. And then I'd show up in person. They'd be like, oh, girl. <laughs> well, and we've become such a femme-centric society that women can get away with talking about how attracted they are to height. Yet men are admonished for talking about how they would like a woman who's thin. And so women will demand in their profiles a certain height. Like, don't contact me unless you're over six foot. And so the guy who's a jokester who used to be able to get women because he can make everybody laugh isn't as appealing anymore because it's all done through apps. It's harder to be funny in apps. But don't you think that kind of weeds out people that you wouldn't want to waste your time with anyway? You know, because if you go out to a bar like an old school like we used to date, go out to a bar like you don't know that that late that girl that won't bother with this someone who's below six foot tall. So you're five foot 11 and you go try to talk to her and she's like, ugh. but you would have never, it takes the, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I can see it being a bad thing and a good thing because uh, it takes the, the guessing out of it. Like, I don't know if this guy over here likes to date, you know, five foot nine, 120 pound women, but I'm going to go pursue him anyway. And then I'm going to get rejected and feel shitty about myself. When, if I would have just seen him on an app, I would have already known, like, I wasn't going to have a chance. You know what I mean? You make a good point. But <laughs> I'll say this. The last two relationships that I had, including my wife, I wouldn't have had if we met on an app because they would have been outside my filters. Right. When we met, she was 22. I wouldn't have gone for a 22-year-old woman, but I met her and I, I liked her a lot. Right. I was watching a YouTube video the other day and they were interviewing women on the street and they said, what's the oldest man you you would go out with? And these girls who are like 27 said, oh, 38. And I'm thinking, I mean, maybe this is my conceit, but I'm like, you wouldn't eliminate me if I was single because I'm 40. Like, there's no way. I mean, people think they know what what they want. Right. You know, I don't know. I think I, I think, too, you got to You if you limit yourself by those um, physical attributes, then you really do miss out on really figuring out what you really want in a person and who they are. You got to date. That's why it's good to just date people. And it's, you know, it's good to have bad relationships because you're like, oh, God, I don't want that again. If you learn your lessons, people don't learn the lessons. People are so status driven nowadays. Coming from someone who who met my husband young, if I would have been about status at 23, like I wouldn't have married my husband. He's just graduated college. He was still looking for a job. He was, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about applies to when you're dating as a young professional. Okay, when you marry your high school or college sweetheart, none of that applies. Yeah. Which is what makes it so tough. Yeah. And I guess that's what I'm saying. Like if I would have not married him. Like, I married him because I knew that he had potential, if that makes sense. Like, I knew he wasn't going to be a bum. But if I would have, I don't know. Well, it's same, But it's the same here. Like, if I, if if someone is 28, let's say, and they're not married yet and they're looking for a man, but they meet another 28-year-old man who maybe just got down on his luck or something. 
and he's but he's pursuing trying to get you know get to a goal like that's got to count for something right or does it not these days women would rather men compete amongst themselves and they wait at the finish line and and sleep with the winners women aren't so good at seeing potential but doesn't they want what's right in front of them but doesn't that go against the whole idea that women want men to be more like feminine because i don't think they do you don't i think women are craving masculinity right now i think mistakenly asked for feminine men and are now realizing that it was all a big mistake i don't think they've been able to articulate it yet but i think there's nothing that turns a woman off more than a weak spineless pathetic man and it's the same way that men are turned off by women who are arrogant and cocky and full of themselves and men are now posting selfies as much as women it's it's so vain you want to do some fun questions yes you want to do some fun questions yes (laughs) okay social media net positive or net negative for society i'm gonna say net negative is that due to your counseling experience uh yes and no yes i it I think it opens more doors for people to be unfaithful to each other. So in that sense, yes, but I think it's more just the time it takes away from people being with each other. I think the most important thing is human connectedness. And I think it's really hurt that. Hot yoga or regular yoga? Hot. Why? So many reasons. One, it's more challenging um, to, to breathe in heat when you're moving Two, it makes you more, it, it, it loosens up your joints and it makes you more flexible. And personally, I just feel like, I mean, there's nothing better than like just sweating your ass off and it just feels good. Have you ever paid for an app? Paid for an app? No, I don't think so. If forced to meditate or pray for 20 minutes a day, which would you choose? Meditate. True or false? A loving wife who makes out with another man on a business trip should tell her husband. I'm going to say true. But it's not that simple, but I'm going to say true. True or false? Sex once a week is more than most people our age. Are doing? Once a week is more? I'm going to say true. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? I would... Save some of it. I would pay off my student loans and I would open an animal sanctuary. <laughs> what percentage chance do you think Donald Trump has of being reelected? 50 50. As someone who is going to be a father in January for the first time, what is your best advice to me to sustain a happy marriage during and after our child is born? Support, 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 support your wife. <laughs> um, as much as you ask her all the time what you can do to support her, um, because it might not be that it wouldn't, it might not be the same for every woman. Some people want more help with diapers. More people, you know, some women just want you know you to just make dinner, or some women want you to 
get up with them in the middle of the night, even if you don't need to be because they're, you know, breastfeeding or whatever. But I constantly check in on her um, at first, especially just make time for each other other than the baby because everything's going to revolve around the baby for a while. But look at her as not just a mom. Editor, we are going to delete that and get up in the middle of the night uh, answer that she just gave. <laughs> okay, overrated or underrated? Josh Reddick. Ooh. Underrated. Dan Crenshaw. Uh, I think he's underrated in how much uh, influence he has. For sure. Dr. Drew Pinsky. I think he used to be overrated. Now I think he's just where he is. Dr. Oz. Probably overrated. Dr. Phil. Overrated. But he's, he's a, I, I like his straight talkingness, but I, I, I wonder how much of it is like a shtick, you know? So that's why I think he's overrated. Dr. Ruth. Underrated. Tisha. Thank you so much for doing this. This was a joy. You're welcome. I hope you'll come back for a part two. I will. I'm sorry I took up so much of your time. <laughs> <laughs> How can people connect with you? You can call me and make an appointment. 832-771-2532. Don't know if I should be giving that out online. Um, but it is my, my work number. Or um, I am on Psychology Today. You can just go to psychologytoday.com and search my name and I'll come up in Available Therapists. But that is it. I do not have a website. I do not have a Instagram, Twitter, nothing. Word of mouth. That's the best Word of way mouth. to do it. I'm yeah. growing the podcast the same way. So friends, if you enjoyed this episode with Kisha, please copy the link and send it to a friend. I really appreciate you tuning in. For those of you who submitted questions... Thank you for doing that. Please keep the questions coming. If I didn't get to your question, I apologize. I will answer your question privately, though. If you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. By the way, we're so old now. Like when we were coming <laughs> out of college, it was thought that you would find your sweetheart by the time you graduated because it would be much tougher to find someone of marriage material once you got beyond college. Even Houston didn't have a large, young, urban, professional community. And most of our friends married people they either met in high school or college. Yeah. I mean, I met my husband in college. I mean, I didn't meet him. He didn't go to my college, but I met He was already graduated, but I was still in college. Yeah. So it's like Houston was kind of late to the game to what New York and Chicago yeah. and those San Francisco areas were doing. But we're there now where there's a very prevalent young professional crowd. There are tons of apartments that have gone up inside the loop in Houston. Oh, just on the drive here. Yeah. And they're all dating just like people in New York. And they'll be uh, single 35 year olds, you know, a thriving community of single 35 year olds pretty soon. Whereas we used to go to the bars at age 24, 25 and be like, that dude is 30 years old. <laughs> I remember. I remember.